him. If you've got your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you this morning to open up with me to Exodus chapter 18. Exodus chapter 18. If you're visiting with us this morning, we have been walking through the book of Exodus since the beginning of the year. And uh, as spring gets near to summer, we're about halfway through. We've read of the famous accounts of God sending Moses to save his people from Egypt through the plagues and the Passover and the Red Sea. We've seen that God is faithful to his people even in the wilderness, providing for their needs and leading them in battle. And this morning we read about a family reunion between Moses and his wife and two sons, as well as his father-in-law, Jethro. And we see in this story... Uh, the convert, and the Christian life. So let's read Exodus 18 together. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning until evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and His laws." Moses' father-in-law said to him, "What are you doing? What you're doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you." 
You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and plate such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. I want to point your attention to a few truths, a few different characters in this Bible story that I believe, if we understand their story and we see what happens and what God does in their life, we can get great encouragement but also be challenged in our faith by thinking through what God does in their life. And the first of these characters I want to point your attention to this morning is the life of Jethro. Because in his life we see the life of a convert. The life of a convert, which is a life that starts with faith, and then that faith produces worship, and that worship produces fellowship, and that fellowship produces service. Faith, worship, fellowship, service is how God works in Jethro's life. Jethro is Moses' father-in-law, and he's coming to bring his daughter and his two grandsons back to Moses. We read here about their reunion. Now, in the book of Exodus, Jethro has already been introduced back in Exodus 2, and he was introduced as a priest of Midian, meaning he was a religious man, just not of the right religion. He was a religious man who worshipped other ancient Near Eastern gods. When Moses had left Egypt and he went out into the wilderness, he ended up meeting this family. And for 40 years, Moses had lived with Jethro and with his daughter, Zipporah, his wife. And it's likely that over the course of 40 years, they had talked about many things, including conversations about God, conversations about faith. And yet when Moses finally left to go back to Egypt... There's no indication in the book of Exodus that Jethro's faith in many gods as a priest of Midian had ever changed. But when he comes to visit Moses, he has heard of what God has done for Israel. He hears of the plagues and the Passover and the Red Sea. He had heard about these things before he got there, but when he got there, Moses spoke about them in greater detail. Jethro's heard about God's salvation of his people, his deliverance. He's heard about God providing for Israel in the wilderness, even them win, him winning the battle for them. 
in the text that we looked at last week. He hears about the greatness of God's salvation and provision and victory. And when Jethro hears this good news of the great acts of God's salvation, something inside of him changes. He begins to rejoice at this good news for Moses and Israel. He even begins to bless the God of Israel, the Lord, Yahweh. Saying in verse 11, Now I know that the Lord, Yahweh, in the original language, is greater than all gods. It seems to me, reading this and studying this week, that Jethro was one who saw value in many different gods and what they would offer. And yet now he's seeing a distinction between the God of Israel and all the other false gods. So he says, now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. Jethro has always been a religious man. But upon hearing the good news of Israel's salvation, Jethro puts his faith in the God of Israel. He doesn't just say, blessed be the God of Israel. That faith overflows in praising God, but also in making a burnt offering and a sacrifice to God. His faith in the Lord produces in his life acts of worship towards God. And this newfound faith that overflows in acts of worship towards God then leads him to fellowship with God's people, eating bread with Aaron and the other elders of Israel. And the next day, when Jethro, this new convert who's worshiping God and who's fellowshipping with God's people, sees how things are operating, sees the burden of leadership that Moses is shouldering all by himself, what does he do? He uses the experience and the wisdom God has given him to encourage Moses to delegate his responsibilities so that God's people can function more efficiently and faithfully. What we see in Exodus 18 is the life of a convert, a life that begins with faith in God, which produces worship to God, which leads to fellowship with God's people, and then leads to using his gifts to serve the people of God. If you're here and claim to follow Christ, that story should sound familiar. Why? Because... That is the same pattern that happens in the lives of God's people still today. The Bible tells us that every one of us are imperfect. Every one of us have a sin nature. And as a result of that, stand as enemies of a holy and good God. Because we choose our sin over Him. We think we know better than God. We think we have life figured out. We listen to the world and we listen to our peers. And we value the things the world does more than God and what His Word tells us. And the only solution to this broken relationship with God is for us to be born again, for us to place our faith in Jesus Christ and what He's done for us to purchase our salvation 
The Bible tells us that when we repent and turn away from our sin and believe in the good news of Jesus' finished work, that we're actually given new hearts that now love and desire God. And that new faith in God, that new saving faith overflows in our lives with genuine worship. We can worship God in this building as we gather with God's people, but we also can worship God everywhere we go and in everything we do, which is why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Faith produces worshipers. In fact, we are all worshipers. Some who don't consider themselves religious, Some who try to avoid church and church people claim that they do not worship anything, but that is a lie. Every one of us is a worshiper. We're all worshiping and giving our ultimate allegiance to something. The question is, are we worshiping the one true God or are we worshiping God replacements and the things that God has made? True faith in the gospel, produces a worshiping people. And those worshiping people then begin to live lives together in fellowship with God's people. A lot of times we hear fellowship and we think about casseroles. I'm thankful for casseroles and potlucks and all those different things, but fellowship is more than just consuming calories in a church building. Fellowship, Christian fellowship is more than a quarterly meal. It's more than small talk about local happenings and sports and weather. It's more than a class that you sit in. Christian fellowship is to be distinctly Christian. Christian fellowship is when people who have been saved by God's grace intentionally are involved in one another's lives, pointing each other to Christ, encouraging one another, bearing each other's burdens, fulfilling the one another commands of Scripture. It's living life together as a body and as a family of faith where our faith in the Savior is the glue that holds us together. Not our age, not our race, not our hobbies, not our tax bracket, but Jesus. Because the church is a group of people from all different backgrounds who have acknowledged their need for Jesus and have fallen in faith on Him alone. And part of this life of fellowship with other believers involves serving one another, using the time God has given you, the talent God has given you, the treasure God has given you for His glory and for others' good. We're all familiar with the Bible passage that says it's better to serve and to give than to be served and to receive. And as a result of that truth that's taught in Scripture, believers are called to use the time, talent, and treasure, the spiritual gifts God has given them to build up and edify and equip the body of Christ. Every one of these steps happens in Jethro's story in Exodus 18. It reminds us of what the normal Christian life looks like. Faith, worship, fellowship, service. But it should also lead us to honestly ask the question, does that story sound like my story? If you haven't placed your faith in Jesus and His finished work for you, 
and you haven't been blown away by God's amazing grace, then you don't need to worry primarily about worshiping with God's people and fellowshipping with God's people and serving God's people. Those should be the least of your worries because getting right with God should be the primary concern. Faith in the finished work of Christ. Faith in Jesus that transforms you and renews you and all the things the gospel does to you. That has to happen first because we don't worship and fellowship and serve in order to be right with God. We worship and fellowship and serve because God has already worked in our lives, because we've already been forgiven, because we've been empowered by the Holy Spirit, because we've been given a new heart that loves God. So if your life is not consistently marked by worshiping God, fellowshipping with God's people, and serving God's people, using your time, talent, and treasure, the question doesn't need to be, how can I get more plugged in? It needs to be, is my faith real and life-changing? And that's hard because it causes us to ask real questions. But God is interested in your heart. He's interested in changing you from the inside out. So that if you have faith or claim you have faith, but your life is marked by living for you and not for God. If you're claiming you have faith, but it's not producing real, genuine, life-changing relationships and fellowship with other believers inside and outside of the local body. If you claim you have faith, but you're not serving God's people in any meaningful way, using the talents and the time God's given you to build up and encourage, then then something is out of whack because this is what the normal Christian life looks like. We are not saved by what we do. We're not saved by our worship or by our fellowship, or by our service. We're not saved by works or good deeds. But friends, true saving faith always produces worship and fellowship and service. That is the convert story, and it's worth asking, is that my story? The first character we see here is Jethro, who models for us the life of a convert. But we also see a different type of life in Exodus 18. Not the life of a convert, but also the life of mature faith. The life of mature faith modeled for us in Moses, where we see in his life that he is living a life of proclamation, proclaiming the gospel, serving God's people, and living a life of humility and teachability. Unlike Jethro, Moses has been a man of faith for a long time. God has taken Moses on a journey from the palace in Egypt to the wilderness, from being a prince in Egypt to being a shepherd. God's empowered him to face down the most powerful man in the world, Pharaoh, to perform miraculous feats, and to set Israel free. Moses has seen God's power and salvation firsthand, and he's now the spiritual leader of Israel. Unlike Jethro's conversion story in Exodus 18, this text shows us Moses' life of mature faith. Notice what Moses does when his father-in-law Jethro comes to visit. 
He runs and welcomes him, showing respect to his father-in-law. Some of you might be in a situation where an in-law visit is not something that gets you excited. I don't know your story, but I know that that often is a common story. But, Mo, or, but Moses here sees them coming, catches wind that they're en route, and he runs out to greet them, runs out to show respect, runs out to show gratitude that they are coming. But he does more than that. He doesn't just clean up the guest room and clean the bathroom so it doesn't look like a slob lives at the house. As soon as he's given an opportunity, Moses begins to share with his father-in-law all that God has done in his life and in Israel's life. He knows that his father-in-law does not worship the one true God, the Lord of Israel. So he is looking for and taking advantage of opportunities to display the greatness of the one true God by speaking about what God has done in his life and in Israel's life. Make no bones about it. Moses here is proclaiming the good news of the gospel and he's being a faithful evangelist even with his lost family members. And it's through his evangelism that Jethro, his father-in-law, comes to faith and becomes a worshiper and one who fellowships with God's people and one who serves God's people. But Moses isn't just proclaiming the good news for the unbelievers in his life. He is also proclaiming the good news by serving God's people. Moses is constantly teaching God's people, giving sound counsel from God's Word about God's will for them. In fact, his life of service is one where he is unwisely bitten off more than he can chew. Moses is trying to do all the work by himself. Moses is the kind of man that instead of sitting on the sidelines when there are needs, he is willing to get his hands dirty. He's willing to carry his weight, to use his time, talent, and treasure that God has given him to lead God's people. He is a problem solver who will take initiative and carry the load instead of sitting on the sidelines complaining about the people who are doing everything, not doing it right. I was talking to someone at the softball field this week who was an assistant coach in one of the leagues, and this person was telling me how much it bothered them during the season when parents who didn't sign up to coach think that they are Bear Bryant. They didn't sign up to coach. They're not willing to put in the extra effort of communicating with all the teammates and and parents throughout the year. They're not the ones who are lugging the gear back and forth to the ball field three or four nights a week. They're not the ones who have to make the lineups or instruct the team or run the practices or make the tough game time decisions. But they sure enough will tell you from the sidelines during the game that you're doing it wrong. That's right. We've probably all been in a spot like that before, even if it doesn't involve youth sports in different areas of our life. It's frustrating when folks who want to complain about everything are not willing to do anything towards fixing the problem. 
It's frustrating when people who want to complain about everything are not willing to do anything to fix the problem. But Moses isn't like that. Moses is a worker. Moses is a servant. Even to a fault, he finds himself doing far more than he can handle, shouldering far more responsibility than he should have to shoulder. He's judging cases, settling disputes, giving wise counsel, and teaching God's Word constantly. His proclamation of the good news to the unbelieving family is important, but so is his proclamation of God's Word to God's people. In fact, Moses is fulfilling the great commission that Jesus gave in Matthew 28 to make disciples of all nations far before Jesus even came and took on flesh in the New Testament proclamation of the good news and service towards God's people are marks of a mature life of faith. But there's one more mark of mature life of faith that we see here, and that's humility. Every one of us has different life experiences, different things we've seen, different skill sets and talents. Every one of us is good at something And when you're good at something, you take pride in it. And when you're good at something and you're experienced at it, and someone comes along and begins to critique what you're doing and giving constructive criticism, what's it easy to do? It's easy to roll our eyes and think to ourselves, you don't know what you're talking about, and I've got this. Who do you think you are coming in here? And telling me what to do. What do you think qualifies you to come in here and give me advice? Do you not know who I am? Right? When we're good at something, a lot of times we we can think that. So imagine the spot Moses is in here. He was at the burning bush. Like that story, he didn't read about it in Exodus 3. He was there. He lived it. He's the dude who actually went and faced down Pharaoh. He didn't just read a story about bravery. He did it. He's the one who who God used to send the plagues of judgment. He was there overseeing the parting of the Red Sea. He's the one who had hit the rock and water had come out to sustain God's people. He was the one whose hands had to be held up in order for God's people to win the victory against the Amalekites. He was there. He's the dude who's God experienced with God. There's no one in Israel who can claim the authority and the experiences and the knowledge and the wisdom that Moses has. And his father-in-law just got saved yesterday. And they rejoiced and fellowshiped. Next day, Moses, you know you're doing all this wrong, right? Moses, you know that you could be doing this a lot better. Just listen to some of my sage-like wisdom. I know I've only been a believer for less than 24 hours, but I think I can fix all your problems. Don't you think it would have been very easy for Moses in that moment to roll his eyes and think, you need to know your old place, man. You need to know your place. I know what I'm doing. You just got saved. What makes you think that you... (laughs) Are you kidding me? But that's not what Moses does. What does he do? 
He listens to the sound advice of someone else instead of proudly doing his own way. He humbles himself and is teachable. No matter what great feats he's accomplished in the past, no matter what great experiences he has already had, Moses does not pretend to be a God who knows it all. Friends, teachability and humility are marks of a mature faith. And we would do well to ask ourselves if our lives are marked by proclaiming the good news of the gospel, of serving God's people with our time, talent, and treasure, and with having a humble and teachable spirit. Friends, in the list of fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5, being a know-it-all who coaches everyone from the sidelines doesn't make the list. Getting your hands dirty and serving in humility, that is a life of mature faith. Keeping the good news of the gospel of Jesus to ourself is disregarding God's command to us to be disciple-makers. Keeping our talents and our time to ourselves instead of serving the body of Christ is bad stewardship of what God has privileged us to have. And proudly being unteachable makes us look more like the lost world than like the redeemed of God. Proclamation, service, and humility should be our joy and should mark our lives if we follow Jesus Christ. To our graduates this morning, congratulations on your accomplishment. What you've done is important. And this week, you're going to hear tons of kind words, whether it be spoken to you in person or written in a card. You'll probably even have some of the make-your-dreams-come-true speeches coming. You can be whatever you want to be and all that. That's fine. I want to say something a little different today. Whether as a graduate or as someone who's here this morning, if you're a seeker of God, a new convert like Jethro, whether you have a mature faith like Moses, or if you're somewhere in between those categories... I want to leave you this morning with a quote that greatly impacted me as a freshman in college 15 years ago. The quote says this, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. The Bible teaches us that God has made us to bring Him glory and to live for Him, not ourselves. We've messed that up by going our own way, thinking we know better than God. But in grace, God has made a way to restore that broken relationship with Him, be forgiven of our sin, and be empowered to live the way that He designed us to live. That way is Jesus Christ who lived the life we couldn't live, died the death we deserve as a consequence of our sin, and overcame the enemies that we could never overcome in our own power. 
That same Jesus, according to the Bible, sits enthroned at God's right hand even this morning as King. And He will one day return to make all things right in our world. And on that last day, only what's done for Christ will last. Relationships, building character, learning life lessons, getting college degrees getting that dream career, making money, starting a family, all those things are good and admirable, even sweet gifts and blessings from God. But God calls us to use all of those things for Him and His glory. So my challenge to our graduates and my challenge to all of us this morning is make your life count For Christ, what you do for Him is eternal. Everything else is temporary. For our graduates and everyone this morning, remember the only way that we can make our lives count for Christ is if we've been forgiven and empowered by our faith in what Jesus has done. Jesus has done what we cannot do Our salvation hinges not on our faithfulness, but on His faithfulness and His perfect work. It's good to want to worship. It's good to want to fellowship with believers. It's good to want to proclaim the gospel. It's good to want to be teachable and humble, but none of those things will save us. And all of those things are only made possible when we humbly repent of our sin and trust in Jesus' faithfulness in our place. It's not about what you do. It's about what He's done. And when we get that right, He can empower us to live the life God has called us to live. So if you're here this morning and you have not repented and believed in the good news of Jesus, today can be the day of salvation. And I invite you to come forward, pray, get counsel for taking that step. It's the most important decision that you can ever make. And if you're here this morning and Jesus Christ has changed and transformed your life, then I invite you to join me in praising His name through song as we close. However the Spirit leads you today, respond faithfully to King Jesus. Let's pray.